This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Good to see you today. If you're a guest, we're thrilled that you're here. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor at Christian Chapel. And as you've heard, today is Royal Kids, Royal Family Kids Camp Sunday uh, at Christian Chapel. You look around, all the people in the green shirts um, did not call each other and uh, say, let's all match the chairs and carpet. But um, we actually are the camp staff who are going. So in 21 years, I think this is the first time we have matched the chairs and carpet. So Um, Yeah, so there we go. But if you're unfamiliar with Royal Family, it is a free week of camp that Christian Chapel provides. This summer is our 21st camp. Um, Over the last 20 years, we have provided over 1,200 camp experiences to children 7 to 11 years old who are in the Tulsa area foster care system. This year, we're taking 76 boys and girls between 7 and 11 to camp. We have about 80 uh, volunteers from Christian Chapel who are spending the week at camp with us, over 100 volunteers in total that are making camp possible. Um, It's just a, a really big part of who we are. At the end of this morning's service, we're going to have a chance to um, give to support Royal Family Kids Camp. It costs about $600 per camper to provide a life-changing week of camp for them. So we'll we'll tell you a little bit more about that at the end of service this morning and share a a story from a a former Royal Family camper with you as well that that I think will be really encouraging to you. Um, Today, though, we are in week four of our summer message series, Keep Moving, where we are walking through... Uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. So Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul. He writes it to encourage a church that he has started. He has uh, started the church and then he has to leave. He's now in prison in Rome and he's writing back to them basically to say, hey, I've heard about what you're doing. I'm proud of you. I'm excited for you. Keep going. Keep moving forward. Keep doing the things that God is calling you to do. And so my hope for us this summer as we work our way through it, is that we find similar encouragement from the scriptures of uh, God sees us, he knows us, he, he is proud of the things that we're engaged in as we're serving him by the power of his spirit, and that we will just keep moving forward into all the things he's calling us to. This morning, as I was uh, taking some time to, to pray and prepare, um, I felt like God was speaking to me and telling me, hey, uh, you're spending the whole summer looking at how Paul encouraged a church that I put him in charge of, I think it would be a good idea for you to encourage a church that I put you in charge of. And I thought, well, that's great. Now, I am not a natural encourager. Some of you are, and that is awesome. And honestly, I want to be like you. Like There are a lot of you that I'll come find you on a Sunday just because I know you're going to say something nice to me, right? Like, I, I just know if I go see Karen Batchelder, she's always going to tell me, honey, that was a great message. And I'm going to feel better about myself. Here's the other thing I know. I know nobody's coming to find me on a Sunday morning thinking, Chris is going to tell me, honey, you did a great job at your job. Like, it's just, it's, I want it to be me, but it's not. Okay, so, th- so this is my, I think, God helping me be more intentional in that. So uh, for the, the rest of the summer, every time I'm preaching these messages, I'm going to try to encourage you with something I've observed from Christian Chapel. So two things this morning, because, you know, if God told me to do one, I'm going to do two, uh, just to... Prove that I'm all in, right? So uh, the first thing, though, is, is a, a serious one. Um, I have seen over the past month on numerous occasions where God has spoken to one of you and said, hey, there's a person in the body at Christian Chapel who has a need in their life, a financial need, and I want you to meet it. And so for me, I, I get the privilege of being on both sides of that equation. So I get to hear from you, the person that God spoke to, 
and you, you email me, you talk to me, you talk to one of our other pastors and say, hey, God, put it on my heart to give this to this person, but I want to do it anonymously so they know it's, it's God's provision, it's not from me. And so I said, great, that's awesome. And, and you make that gift, and then I get the privilege of writing a short little note or a letter to the, the person that's receiving the gift just to say, hey, just want you to know, God is watching out for you. He sees you. He knows you. He is speaking to people about you. The things you're praying for, he's talking to other people about as well. And so we hope you receive this gift as a sign of God's provision and a sign that he loves you enough to talk to other people about you. And then I get the the really great part of the follow-up email typically back from that person who says, this was just the right gift at just the right time for just the right need. And so I want to encourage those of you who are hearing from God to give, to be generous. Those of you who think maybe you are, I want to encourage you, just keep doing it, right? When, when God says, hey, I want you to give to this person, to that ministry, to this need, he's asking you to do it because there's already a plan for the gift you're going to make. So just keep doing it. It is a wonderful sign of God's kingdom. It's a wonderful example to others of how God uses us to be part of his provision for each other. So thank you so much. The the second encouragement is not quite as serious, but was equally uh, meaningful to me at least. So I was talking to a, a couple who recently had moved to Christian chapel. They moved from out of town. And they were just telling me some of the things they'd observed about the church. I mean, very kind and very complimentary. Um, but one of the things really jumped out to me because I'd never considered it before. And uh, the guy was telling me, he said, yeah, my wife told me she noticed the first Sunday we were here as she kind of looked around the room, people just weren't on their phones. I said, well, what do you, what do you mean? Like, he said, well, all the churches we've been at before, you look around the room, especially during the sermon, and it's just a whole lot of this. Right, which, which this we'll be okay with. You're probably texting, but we're at least going to tell ourselves if your thumbs are moving, you're taking notes, right? So, so we're going we're gonna to do that, give you credit, give ourselves, like that makes it easier. But he was saying, no, no, like there was no scrolling because the scrolling means you're on Instagram, right? And that's just, you're just going through the feed. So he was saying, what we noticed was nobody's on their phone. People are fully engaged in the message, fully listening. So good job to you guys, parents, setting a great example to your teenagers. Teenagers either doing a great job of being mature or at least obeying your parents, saying, get the phone in your pocket. Uh, whatever it is, great job. Because here's the thing, like, it, it seems kind of lighthearted, but if we seriously believe in the words of the Scripture and we believe the Spirit speaks through them to us, then when we have opportunities like this, we want to take it seriously. And when we come with an expectation that God will speak and wants to speak, what happens most often is we hear him speak. right? And, and so that means we got to remove those distractions and really really get locked in. So uh, just a couple encouragements for you. Now today in Philippians chapter 2, what we're going to see Paul encouraging the Philippians to do is he's basically saying, if you believe some of these things, then it's going to work itself out. And his primary concern in this passage we're going to see this morning is that if we believe Jesus is who he says he is and he did what he said he did, then it's going to change our relationships with one another. Okay, now the, these if-then statements, we're familiar with them. Rennie kind of hit on it last week when she preached that message from the end of Philippians 1 about if we have been changed by the gospel, then we're going to live our lives worthy of the gospel. We're going to live out of that calling, live out of that new identity. And Paul is continuing that same line of thought today by saying, if you believe this, then this. Now, these if-then statements, you're familiar with them because they work in, in all kinds of areas of your life, right? As a, as a parent, you know... If I want my kids to grow up to be responsible, mature adults, then I need to discipline them now. 
You know if I want to lower my cholesterol, then I need to eat fewer french fries. You know, if you don't like heat, then you better leave Oklahoma for the next two months or so because it's about to get miserable. Like we're approaching the time of year where we all question, God, why do I live here? Like, why did you, why can't we, I mean, at some point we'll have a church vote to move to Denver for August and September. And we'll just all go and you can all work remotely and everything will be wonderful, right? We'll meet in an elementary school. I really haven't planned this, but it's sounding really good right now as we say it. And we'll see if this is God's plan or not. But, you know, you, you know this, if this, then that. And so what Paul is saying here is if you believe in who Jesus is and what he's done in your life, then this is, going, this is how it's going to play out. So let's read verses 1 through 11, Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Paul's encouraging us here, if Jesus has changed your life, then it should change your relationships. He says in verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, then you should be like-minded, having the same love, being one spirit and one mind. If you condense these couple verses down to just one simple statement, it's if Jesus has changed your life, then it changes your relationships. There is no idea in the New Testament about you making an individual decision to follow Jesus, and now spiritually you're good with God, but over here in the rest of your life, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, because that's already good. He always intends that the things that happen inside of us overflow to the outside of us. And one of the primary ways that we should see the transformation Jesus brings to us individually is through our relationships. And when he begins to transform our relationships, he begins to form transformed communities. The call to follow Jesus is, first of all, an individual call to you to make a decision to follow him as your Lord and Savior. But coming alongside of that call is a call into community and a call into relationships. Because it's in relationships where we actually live out the gospel. See, most of us, if if we had an option to come and say yes to Jesus and then go out to the desert by ourselves or go to the mountain by ourselves or have everybody leave us alone forever, it'd be fairly easy for us to live out our faith. But in relationships, our selfishness is tested. In relationships, our rough edges are exposed and rubbed up against. In relationships, we have the opportunity to meet needs and either respond as Jesus or respond as ourselves. It's in relationships that our faith is actually worked out. And so what Paul is telling us is, if you have been united with Christ, then you will be united with each other. 
And the, the stories of community transformation are one of the most powerful testimonies to the power and effectiveness of the gospel. Now, your individual story of Jesus' transformation is great, and you should tell it. You should tell people how Jesus has saved you. You should tell them how he set you free. You should tell them about, this is what my life was before, and this is what my life is like now because of Jesus. Those are great stories. We love hearing them. They're very encouraging. And yet, individual testimonies are always somewhat limited because there's always an easy way to excuse ourselves from someone else's story. Because you can tell me your story and say, hey, Jesus set me free. Jesus delivered me. He gave me meaning. He gave me purpose. And I can look at you and say, well, yeah, but he also gave you this wonderful home that you grew up in. And he gave you this job that you love. And he gave you all that money in the bank. And he gave you those respectful kids. And he gave you all of these sorts of things. And I can decide that what Jesus has done for you isn't about Jesus. It's about you. Right? And, and, and that's true for all of us. We can always excuse ourselves from individual stories of transformation. But community stories of transformation are much more difficult to excuse ourselves from. Because for every time I can say, yeah, but I've got this in my life, the response is, so does he. Yeah, but I had to deal with this situation. So did she. Yeah, but we walked through this in our family. So did they. Right? And as I start to look around and every element of my story is reflected in someone else's story, all of my excuses are removed. And I start to see, oh, the gospel works here and the gospel works there and the gospel works now and the gospel works then. And so the gospel works for me. But beyond that, community stories of transformation push us farther into the gospel because the church is the most diverse institution in the world. Right now, now, local churches do not always accurately reflect the diversity of the big church. But if you go around the world, you go throughout history, what you will find is Christianity is the most ethnically diverse, racially diverse, linguistically diverse, politically diverse, economically diverse religious system that the world has ever known. Every other system of faith, system of belief, in some way is going to be constrained by culture, by language, by some other identifying characteristic. But you can go and find Christians in India, in South America, in Africa, in China, in Russia, in the United States, all over the place. And you're going to find remarkably diverse cultures, remarkably diverse worship styles, but unity around who Jesus is, what he's done, and how we are supposed to live that out. It unites us to people who are different than us. And the reason that is possible is because for 2,000 years, Christians have taken seriously Paul's command in Philippians 2, that if Jesus has changed my heart, then he's going to change my relationships. Which means for us this morning that if we sit here with any idea of, well, that person can't possibly be a Christian because their skin color is different than mine, because they voted differently than me, because they make too much money or they don't make enough money, because they let their kids do that or they let their kids do that, because of this, any of these kind of things that we try to say, no, 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 they can't possibly be a Christian. What Paul is saying is, no, 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 we're supposed to be diverse. We're supposed to be different. We are united in Christ. And if we've been united to Christ, then we are going to be united to our brothers and sisters. And if you refuse to be united to Christ, then you're going to refuse to be united to your brothers and sisters. And if you refuse to be united to your brothers and sisters... Maybe you're not as united to Jesus as you think, right? And so even as Paul encourages us, he's always kind of sticking these little things in the side to really kind of make us think and kind of make us pay attention. And, and then he starts to get right down into the weeds, into the details of our lives and our relationships to show us Jesus came to revolutionize your relationships, and this is what it's going to look like. So he says in verse 3, if you want those, those new relationships, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So it seems very straightforward, and yet if you stop and think about it, you're going to recognize pretty quickly, you can't do any of this, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That is the the mode by which most of us operate every single day, out of selfish ambition, vanity, and conceit. Looking for what's the best thing for me, what's the best opportunity for me, how can others look at me, how will they appreciate me, I deserve this, they owe that to me. This is our standard mode of operation, and yet Paul says if you want to revolutionize relationship, you can't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, most of us, even now, think that is really true for my husband, for my wife, for my kids, or for my parents. We, you know what I'm good at? I am good at identifying the selfish behavior of other people. Just, I mean, I can, we can talk for five minutes. I can tell you all the ways you're selfish. You know what I'm bad at? Doing the same thing for myself. Because it's not selfish when it's me, right? You don't want to admit it, but I know you. It's the exact same thing. Paul says, don't do it. And our natural response is like, yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. If you all would stop doing that, my life would be easier. But he is directing this to us personally. You don't do anything selfishly. Most relational trauma and relational drama is rooted in selfishness. I mean, uh, of all the the marriage counseling I've ever done, selfishness is at the core. It's two individuals who've decided my way or the highway, and they are just locked in this struggle, seeing who's going to cave first. You know, what Paul is telling us is if you want revolutionized relationships, you have to stop doing that. And so for some of us, we legitimately, though, you might think, I, I, man, I hope my spouse is listening. I hope my kids, my mom, my dad is listening. hope my friends are listening. There might be a time that God leads you to have a heart-to-heart conversation with someone about, look, there's some selfish behavior in your life. And I think we need to talk about it. But if he does that, you better have made sure you have spent a lot of time with the Holy Spirit examining your own heart and letting him reveal your own selfish ambition and vain conceit. Because the last thing we want is to be the person going to our family member, to our friend, to our coworker, with trying to say, hey, let me get that little speck of selfishness out of your eye while we've got this giant log of selfishness in ours. But Paul's telling us, look, if you want revolutionized relationships, first, stop doing this. Stop being selfish. Stop living a look-at-me kind of life. Stop living with this conceit that thinks, I deserve this, I earn it, you owe this to me. Lay all of that down, but don't just stop doing the wrong things. You also need to, he says, start doing the right things. In humility, value others more than yourself. Now, that idea of living in humility does not mean you become a doormat. It doesn't mean that you are thinking of yourself in a lesser way, that you're lowering yourself before others. Instead, it is Christ-like humility. Jesus lived with humility. It was because he knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what God had called him to do. And so he gave his life to preferring the interests of others over his own interests. He gave himself up for us, and now he calls us to do the same thing with each other. And so for us to live in humility, to be humble in our relationships, is to recognize in every relationship I have, God has a plan for the other person. 
They are his son, they are his daughter. Before they were your wife or your husband, your child, your coworker, your boss, your employee, your aunt, your uncle, whatever, they, before they had any title in life, their primary title was that this, a son and a daughter of God. And our job now is to live in humility and to value them above ourselves. So there are going to be times we're going to lay down our rights. We're going to lay down our preferences. We're going to lay down our privileges for the sake of helping others discover their true identity. And just in case we don't get what that means, Paul says, not looking out for your own interests, but each of you looking out for the interests of the other. Now, now this is, again, just very plain, very straightforward, and very impossible. We could go back in the, the nursery this morning. If you go back there in the hallway, there's three windows cut in where you can look in. And if we could all go back there, we could stand in those windows, and I bet we wouldn't be there five minutes before we saw two two-year-olds engaged in a battle of wills over a toy, right? And we all know exactly how that goes. One of them is going to have the toy. It's going to be playing with the toy, enjoying it, and somebody else is going to decide, that looks fun. I'm taking it. They're going to come, snatch it out of their hands, and if the, the one that was taken from is particularly aggressive, they're going to snatch it back, they're going to look at that kid, and they're going to scream, mine, right? It happens again and again. And if they're super aggressive, there might be a little punch or a push or a kick that goes with it. Uh, if it's a little girl, she might cry to manipulate the worker to get the kid in trouble. Uh, like, I mean, at least that's what my sisters did through their teenage years, uh, maybe still. But, uh, you know, this is just how it works. It's, it's what happens. And so we can go back there and we would all sit there and we would kind of laugh except for the one parent of the kid who punched or kid or kicked. You'd be horrified. But the rest of us would laugh and we would walk away thinking, man, it's so great that we're not like that anymore. Here's the thing, though. If we're really honest, we have outgrown the outburst, but we have not outgrown the belief. We still, for the most part, live with a mine mentality. right? In, in every relationship, we're looking for mine. How do I get what I want? How do I get what I need? How do I get what's best for me? In every working relationship, we're looking for how do I get the advantage? How do I wind up on top? How do I make sure I'm not taking advantage of? And what Paul is telling us here is if you believe in what Jesus has done in you, then you're going to live in humility. You're going to prefer the interests of others even over yourself. You're going to willingly lay down your rights, your privileges, and your pride for the sake of helping others find their identity in Jesus Christ. And when I commit to do this and you commit to do this, unity becomes possible. As long as we are both committed to achieving what is mine, we're never going to live in unity together. We might learn to coexist, but it's always going to be uneasy. It's always going to be this underlying tension. There's never going to be true and perfect Christian unity as Jesus came to give us. And so as we start to think about these things, it seems impossible. It seems like it's more than we could do. And what Paul wants us to understand is, yes, actually it is. But because of what Jesus has done, this new life is now possible for you. So he says in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So it's, it's almost like Paul can hear our objections. No selfish ambition, no vain conceit, live in humility, prefer their interests over my own. That's impossible. No one can do that. 
And so his response is, consider Jesus, the one who had everything, fully, eternally God, with all the rights, all the privileges, all the responsibilities, all of the power. And his response was to look at us in our sin and our brokenness and say, I'm going to give up everything so that I can give them everything. He saw a gap that our sin had created that we could never cross. He saw the destruction it brought, not just in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with each other. And the response of Jesus Christ was to empty himself of all of his divine rights and his divine power and to say, I will become like them so that they can be restored to me. Jesus gave up everything to give us everything. And this is where our hope for restored relationships lies. Not in our ability, right? It's not that we just walk out today and say, I'm going to be less selfish. I'm going to be less vain. I'm going to be less conceited. I'm going to be more humble. I'm going to prefer others. If you walk away with four things to do, you've missed the whole point. Paul's whole point here is because of what Jesus did, this new life is now possible for you. But it's only possible as his spirit lives in you and his spirit flows through you. Now, in in most of Paul's letters and writings, what he will do is he will start with kind of these big theological statements. And he'll talk to us about who God is and how great and how powerful he is and what the gospel means and just these grand statements. And then he kind of funnels it down to into our daily life. And so he'll say, this is what Jesus is. This is who Jesus, uh, this is what he's done. This is how it works. This is what it means. And then he'll come down and say, now, because of all this, treat your husbands, treat your wives this way. Because of all this, this is how you're supposed to work. This is how you're supposed to give. This is how you're supposed to pray. This is how you're supposed to love. This is how you're supposed to forgive. He always, almost always starts big and then funnels down. Now, in in Philippians 2, he does the reverse of that. He starts at the bottom and says, this is how you're supposed to live. Be united to each other. But he knows we're going to get stuck there on our own. Because relationships are messy. Because unity is difficult. Because humility is not a natural tendency in any of us. Because selfishness runs deep. And so he says, okay, we're going to start here. Look at your problems. Look at your issues. And now as you start to see your complete inability, I'm going to start to raise your eyes up a little bit. And I want you to look and I want you to see Jesus Christ. The one who gave up everything for you. The one who laid himself down. The one who sacrificed it all. You can live in humility. You can lay down your preferences because look at what he laid down. Nothing you're laying down is any comparison at all to what he laid down for you. And he's starting to lift our eyes up from our problems, from our difficulties, from our impossibilities to start to see what Jesus has already done. And then he finishes with this huge overarching statement in verse 9. He says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Paul's telling us, look, you start here in your relationships. You see your inability. You see the impossibility. But then you see what Jesus gave up. And he says, but more than that, Jesus gave it up. He overcame it all. And then God exalted him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. And if there's this this hope that one day everyone everywhere will bow before Jesus, what Paul's trying to help us understand is if he can do that, he can do this, right? If he can make every tongue confess him as Lord, he can help you hold your tongue in your relationships for the sake of humility and unity. If he can make every knee bow, 
then he can make your will bow to his. If he can overcome it all, then he can overcome anything that you're facing this morning. Paul, he does this over and over and over again. He never comes to us and says, Jesus did this, so you should try to be like him. But he comes and says, Jesus did this, and now his spirit lives in you and makes this new life possible. And he's always lifting our eyes up. He's always encouraging us that, hey, Jesus stands over and he stands above. He is under, he's around, he's before, he's behind. He is always working through every part of your life, through every single relationship. And so for you and I, we come in here this morning with all kinds of, of different relationships. And, and here's what I know. I don't, I don't know the state of every marriage. I don't know the state of every family, friendship. I don't know the details of your job. But I've done this long enough, and there are enough of us in the room that I know we don't all have it as together as it appears to be right now. And you, you can look around on a Sunday, and, and things can look good. Husband, wife, sitting there, arms around each other, holding hands. And it, it looks great, and we look across the room and think, man, they love each other. And inside that, that wife's head, she's thinking, I wonder if, if I just move my hand from his shoulder to his neck. Like, how hard could I squeeze for all my problems, right? You, like, you would never admit it, but you've had that thought. Maybe it was this morning you looked over at him sleeping in bed and thought, would anyone know? Yes, they would. Don't do it. That's the devil, right? So get behind me, Satan. Don't kill your spouse. Uh, but, but you have that thought. We come in. You're sitting in a row. You got all the kids there. Everybody's looking around thinking, man, I, I hope when my kids are teenagers, we're like that family. Look at how respectful and kind they are. And what nobody knows is that you have become completely unhinged four or five different times since the last three days have passed, right? That, that you have the, the typical, I mean, I think every teenager at some point has that fight with their parents where they look at their parents and say, I can't believe you're my mom or dad. I hate that God gave me you for my parents. And as a parent, hopefully you hold your tongue, but occasionally you have the thought of like, I hate it too. I don't know why he did it. I think he's mad at me. Why did he give me a miniature version of me? I can't control me. Why did he think I could do another version of me? Like, this is the, the worst of every world, right? But we can come in here on a Sunday, and we talk about revolutionized relationships, and we all think, yeah, that'd be good, but, but we're pretty good. Or, or sometimes we're really honest. We think that would be good, but that's not possible here. There's too much hurt. There's too much harm. There's too much brokenness. And, and sometimes those relational wounds are the hardest to heal. Some of us this morning, we're carrying around wounds that are, five years old, 10 years old, 30, 40 years old. There are things that happened to you as a child that are still kind of filtering out into your marriage, into your parenting, into your friendships. The message of the gospel is that because of who Jesus is, he can heal every single wound that you've experienced. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That at the name of Jesus, every wound will be healed. And every relationship can be restored to the glory of God. This is Paul's encouragement to us. Not that we can do it, but that Jesus has done it. That his victory now becomes our victory. And so this is the hope that we're walking into. And whatever our relational situation is this morning, we come just to say, Lord, will you come and bring your hope, bring your healing, bring your spirit into my life? In just a minute, I want to tell you some stories about Royal Family Kids Camp and, and how this idea of revolutionized relationships is meaningful there. But before we do, I want to pray for us in, in our situations, our relationships this morning. So if you'll bow your heads with me and close your eyes. If you're in a spot today where you need 
Jesus to come and to bring healing and to bring new life into relationships. It might be a marriage. It might be a friendship. It might be your parenting. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's some long-standing family drama. But you know there is relational trauma or drama in your life. And you need Jesus to come and bring life into those spaces. Will you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Lord, you see each one of us, and, and God, we thank you that you know the exact details of every relationship. We thank you, Lord, that, that none of it is beyond your sight, none of it is beyond your concern, and none of it is beyond your ability to work, to bring healing and hope and salvation. And so, Lord, I ask, first of all, that you would come to each one of us and you would reveal where we are given to selfishness, where we tend towards vanity, towards conceit, Lord, where we tend to turn every relational problem into if they would straighten out, then I would be fine. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to own our part of our relationship pain. Lord, I pray for those who are experiencing just relational divides, relational separations, and we ask this morning that your spirit would come, and as we surrender our selfishness, as we pick up humility, as we embrace the work of your spirit in our life, Lord, will you come and turn the hearts of husbands and wives back towards one another? Will you come and, and take two individuals who are just grinding it out in marriage, And will you begin to unite them supernaturally so that two can once again become one? Jesus, will you come this morning and begin to turn the hearts of parents back towards their children? Turn the hearts of children back towards their parents. Lord, we pray that you would restore broken relationships, that you would mend hurt friendships, Lord, that you would go to work in office spaces and on job sites tomorrow, God, in in every space. And Lord, we pray especially for those who carry deep relational hurts. Lord, hurts they may have never talked to anyone about, hurts that that go so deep, it's just caused a filter through which they see all of life. Lord, we pray that you would work in the deepest recesses of our hearts and minds this morning to begin the process of bringing permanent and lasting healing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In a few moments when we're dismissed, if you'd like someone to join with you with personal prayers, you'll be able to head out the back doors and to your left. Some of our prayer team will be waiting to meet with you. This morning, though, I I want us to, to think, because when God revolutionizes our relationships, it's not just for us. It's also so that we create an open community where others can continually find healing in relationship. Royal Family Kids Camp exists to help children in foster care find hope and find healing. One of the recurring themes of Royal Family is that children who have been harmed in relationship will be healed in relationship. And so this week, we'll take 76 boys and girls to camp. If you know anything about foster care, you know that the criteria for being in foster care is terrible. Nobody's there because life was good. Either mom or dad died or somebody's in jail or there was some form of abuse or abandonment or neglect. The stories that that we'll hear from our kids this week over lunch at the pool in the creek are are crushing at times. And you have absolutely no idea how God could ever heal the hurts that they've endured. And yet what we've seen over the last 20 years is that children who have been harmed in relationship are healed in relationship. And God brings hope and he brings healing and he brings life to us. Royal Family Kids Camp is an international organization. There are over 200 camps that take place in the United States every summer. There are several international camps as well. And so there are all kinds of stories from around the world of the, the powerful transformation 
that occurs through relationships at Royal Family. Uh, their national office put out a story uh, earlier this year that it's just kind of a perfect summary of this passage of Philippians, a perfect example of what we're trying to do this week at camp. And so I'm going to share that with you. And then after that, I'm going to come back. We're going to have an opportunity to give to make camp possible for more kids this year and in the years to come. From my earliest memories, I always wanted to have a home and a normal family. I built up an idea of what my life should look like, but I quickly came to understand that my childhood was anything but normal. There was no way I was going to face life alone and survive. My grandmother was an alcoholic. My mother was an alcoholic. First, it was the belt. Then it was choking. I learned to accept this violence and call it love. I grew to hide my anger, but I couldn't conceal the bruises. My life was turned upside down. I went from foster care home to foster care home for years. All I remember is leaving with a trash bag filled with a few t-shirts and my teddy bear. I felt like I had been thrown away. I was a spare part, a broken toy. I couldn't understand why God would give me a mom that would hurt me. We were eventually reunited, but the being continued. I was rebellious and angry at the world. And then I was introduced to royal family kids. For the first time in my life, I had permission to be a kid. Royal Family Kids gave me all of the experiences that make childhood fun. Fishing, hiking, and birthday parties. I felt loved and safe. I wasn't invisible. It wasn't easy to accept that these counselors were really my friends. I'd been taught that no one would ever love me like my mom, that no one would ever take their shirt off their back for me. She was wrong. Royal Family Kids helped build a foundation of unconditional love and hope. They even gave me a Bible. They knew that eventually I would have to face the world again. It happened so fast. All I remember is my mom throwing out all of my camp gear and clothes. All I had the chance to do was rip out all of the signatures and quotes from my Bible. I was 16 and homeless. I called my mentors at Royal Family Kids and they took me in. In the darkest time of my life, I reached out for people who had shown me true love. I remember telling God, from here on out, every choice I make will be directed to getting closer to you. I never looked back. Every day is a recommitment to forgiveness. Royal Family Kids has provided me with the tools to choose a new path for my life, one filled with hope and joy. I am thankful to God for this and for those that make it possible.
We can all make a difference in the lives of foster kids. We can give them a sense of stability, security, self-esteem, and a vision for the future. Every kid deserves to smile. No one should face life alone. And thanks to Royal Family Kids, foster children don't have to. He loves them and he has a plan for them. Uh, through your faithful giving to Kingdom Builders, we fund a significant portion of Royal Family. But each year, our expenses go up, and we hope to continue to take more and more kids each year. As I said, it's about $600 to take one child to a week of camp. Uh, many of our campers, once camp has ended, ended about 25 to 30% of them will enroll in our mentoring club that will connect them with members of our, our camp staff throughout the upcoming school year, where they will continue to grow in those relationships. All of your gifts this morning are helping fund Royal Family Kids Camp and Mentoring Club, making a life-changing difference. As I said earlier, we, we will encounter some horrible stories of abuse, abandonment, neglect. There will be times where we have no idea how God will work, how God will heal. And yet, having done this for 20 years now, we know from firsthand experience that he does. We have relationships with some of our campers who are at some of our earliest camps that are now in their, their late 20s and their mid-30s, and, and they tell us, Royal Family Kids Camp changed my life. I had a friend that I met, a, a, another pastor in town, he was telling me that he had adopted a couple boys. And he said, are, are you guys the church that does Royal Family Kids Camp? And his boys are now late high school. I said, we are, and we talked a little bit about it. He says, my 18-year-old my son still has his little treasure box of goodies that he brought back from Royal Family when he was eight. It was the first summer we had them in our home in foster care, and it was a transformational week for them. People find healing in relationship. It takes our giving, it takes our going, it takes our praying to create those spaces where God can work. So thank you for giving generously. Thank you for giving joyfully. You can also give online at christianchapel.com slash give. Just select Royal Family Kids in the drop-down box. The band's going to lead us in a song while we give this morning. And then after that, we're going to have a prayer for our camp staff before they take off this afternoon.
That's the message we want to internalize. It's the message we want every camper to internalize this week. I'm gonna ask all of our camp staff, if you are helping with Royal Family Camp in any way this week, if you'll come line up across the front, we wanna pray for you before you go this morning. I know we had a, a massive chunk in first service this morning, but um, I wanna pray for each one of us. Said earlier, it's 76 campers, takes about 80 staff that are at camp all week long, over 100 staff to help in various capacities. Some come down and do a carnival one night, others do a birthday party, some help with registration, with a welcome home dinner for the staff when they come home. But it takes every single one, and we want to pray for each one of them today. We join me in prayer, Lord. We thank you um, that, first of all, you have great plans for every single camper that we get to interact with this week. Lord, we pray that um, your spirit would go to work even now against any obstacle that would try to rise up to prevent a child from coming to camp. We pray that you would overcome all of those challenges, all of those last minute problems, get the, the exact campers that you have designed for this week in the spots that they're supposed to be in. And Lord, we pray for our camp staff that they would serve by the power of your spirit this week. Lord, will your spirit come and give us eyes to see each child as you see them? Give us ears to hear each child as you hear them. Give us hearts to love them as you love them. Lord, we pray that in those spaces where our, our camp staff does not know what to do, does not know what to say, Lord, that they would welcome that weakness and invite the power of your spirit to work in those spaces. Holy Spirit, we come in humility, recognizing our incredible need for your wisdom, for your discernment for your strength, for your power, for your grace, for your mercy, for your love. So Holy Spirit, will you come and sow the gifts of your spirit deep inside of us. May they take root and flourish out of us. May the gifts of your spirit work through us, Lord, for the glory of God, for the benefit of the campers. We pray that this will be a week of peace, a week of healing, a week of restoration, that children who have been harmed in relationship will be healed in relationship. Lord, unify us through our commitment to you and our commitment to be your hands and your feet this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. May you go in God's grace and peace. We look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.